0: tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille Deputter, and with me today is Jennifer Brocksterman. Jennifer Brocksterman is a registered dietitian and founder of Prosper Nutrition Coaching, a world class nutrition certification for gym owners and coaches. She's an award winning Foods and Nutrition University professor, writer for Precision Nutrition, where we've previously collaborated together, and owns her own private practice, Nutrition Rx. Jen has worked with clients from NHL hockey players and Olympic athletes to everyday folks looking to eat and feel better. On top of that, she's a stage three ovarian cancer survivor who is given less than an 8% chance of living to five years. Yet here she is today, healthy, thriving, and living life to the fullest. She's got an incredible story and never holds back on her enthusiasm or passion, nor does she hesitate to share her journey, including the raw and real details. So. That's why I wanted to have her on the show today. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So glad to have you. I thought we could start, as I often do, just with your story. Um, Can you walk us through it? Maybe beginning with where you were, what you were doing before your cancer diagnosis. And I would love if you could share, folks, what that whole roller coaster ride was like for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, buckle up. It's going to get a little bit bumpy. So pre-cancer things were just humming along as you would expect a happy, healthy adulthood to do. So to go. So I was, you know, a high level athlete, I had done varsity, double varsity sports and both ice hockey and rowing. And then I transitioned after university into CrossFit. And I loved just eating well and training hard and being as strong as I could and, and taking good care of myself. So I'm, you know, happily training at a high level. I'm as fit as can be. I'm one of my weird hobbies is to go hiking on mountains all over the world. So we had just done the West Coast Trail in British Columbia and the East Coast Trail in, you know, Newfoundland. But there's this nagging feeling that something is off. And but you are made to feel crazy or like a hypochondriac because for someone that is a registered dietitian and competing at a high level and fit and lean and I don't look the part with air quotes. And I I really hate that looks have to come into the healthcare that you're provided or how people are judged or had healthcare withheld from them. That happened to me. And so around 29 years old, I had my first inkling that cancer might be starting. Although in my head, Why would I think cancer at age 29? And I go to my family doctor and reproductively, my period is a little bit off at that point. I know I'm eating well. I have enough body fat, enough dietary fat. I was like running through my checklist of, you know, what could be connected. And so I get a pap test done in, you know, good due diligence. And it comes back inconclusive, abnormal. So I follow up with the hospital to do the three pap tests in a year. And they tell you, no news is good news. So if we don't reach out to you, nothing to worry about. So no one reached out to me. I continue living my life, but I'm starting to get a little bit sicker, a little bit more upset stomach. Suddenly I get to the point where I am sick to my stomach pretty much every single day. Like nothing I eat seems to agree with me. So then the dietitian in me is like, well... I'm going to become an IBS digestive health expert. So let me go down the little nerdy rabbit hole and learn anything and everything I can. So to not only help myself, but help my clients who don't feel well are being taken seriously by their family doctor or gastroenterologist. So I start learning about food sensitivities and intolerances and stress levels and the gut microbiome and FODMAP and SIBO. And I was like, what could it be? And finally, Five entire years later, after begging for a colonoscopy, I'm finally granted one. At this point, I'm wondering if I have a parasite in me or something because I'm just so sick all the time. And by that five year point later, when they tried to get the colonoscopy camera up to me, it was so invaded with cancer in my large intestine, they could barely kind of navigate the camera where it needed to go. And so in an instant, I was 34 at this point. So five years had gone by. Um, At that time, they pulled me into the private medical room. And I work in healthcare. You don't want to get pulled into the private medical room after a procedure and told that the doctor wants to speak to you. The doctor's like, you know, we found something, we biopsied it, we're going to send it off to pathology for testing. Um, We'll get back to you, you know, when we have more information. And I'm a very straight shooter. So I just looked the doctor straight in the eye and I was like, is it cancer? And he's like, well, you know, he's was like talking around it. He's like, we, you know, we have to wait for pathology. We can't really say anything. And I was like, be direct with me. Like you, you're, you look inside people's bodies all the time. Is this cancer? And he's like, well, 50, 50. I now have since tracked down my pathology report and that, you know, um, post-procedure note, and they very much knew it was cancer in that moment. But of course, they have to hold back until they get the official confirmation. Mm -hmm. So I basically get sent home to wait. And it was three long weeks of no information back after five long years of trying to ask for testing to figure out what was exactly wrong with my body. And then the night I actually was told I have cancer, I will never forget because it's, it's so crazy. You can't make this up. So I was brought to the hospital that day. The surgeon wouldn't even come in my room to talk to me. He sent like the the intern and training in. They still hadn't received the pathology because I didn't realize my hospital sent it to two other Canadian pathology centers for additional testing because I have a more rare, aggressive form of cancer. Now, no one was communicating this to me, um, and the surgeon, I don't even think, really checked my file carefully. So the intern comes in and they're like, well, that we think same in you, we'll probably cut that part, portion of your large intestine out, uh, you know, in a month or two, we'll, we'll schedule that surgery and we'll just like remove that segment of your intestinal tract. You should be okay pretty quickly. So I was like, oh, okay. Like, doesn't really tell me what it is, but it doesn't sound that bad. I guess from what the intern says, five hours go by and I get a blocked phone number call at 5.58 PM. I'll never forget the day. It was October 29th. 2018, a dark, stormy fall night just before Halloween. And in my gut, I just knew it was the hospital calling back and I knew bad news was coming. So I picked up the phone and essentially I was like, hello, you know, this is Jennifer speaking. And so the surgeon's like, hey, I actually have to update the news. The pathology just came back. You are positive for cancer, colon cancer at the time. They misdiagnosed me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you have any questions for me? Okay, the hospital will be in touch with next steps. Click. It was the most cruel, calculated, not calculated, but like cold, clinical, cruel. There was no empathy. There was no other human on the other line. It might have been, might as well have been in AI robot picking up the phone, being like, this is the script I have to deliver. And, and then again, leaving me with no clear next steps. Um, and I always go back to this Brene Brown quote of clarity is kind, lack of it un- lack of clarity is unkind. And that was just such an unkind way to be told your whole life is changing at 34. So huh, big breath, because that's a huge moment, it's a real live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, i am trying to reach my husband to update him on this news, but he's a professional CrossFit coach and owns our CrossFit gym. So as a pro coach, he doesn't have his phone on the floor, you know, it's on silent mode in a drawer in his office. So he's not like looking at his phone between classes. So the best way I can get a hold of him is I call a member's wife of our gym, who I know her husband always trains at the 6 p.m. evening class. And I call my friend Cindy and I'm like, Cindy, I have cancer. And she's like, what? Your dog has cancer? And I was like, no, not my dog. I have cancer. Can you please try to reach your husband? tell my husband, I need him to come home right away. And then, you know, called my family that lives in another city and they got in the car and started driving. And I was just in shock. Like I didn't ask the doctor any questions. I didn't ask next steps. Like the moment you're told you're 34 and you have pretty advanced cancer, what do you do? Like, I just, I froze up essentially, which is very normal. And I'm like, not mad at myself for that response. Mm -hmm. That was my lived response. Mm So then, thankfully, the smartest thing I did is I got called back in that Friday. So about five days goes by where no one reaches out to give me any sort of an update or next steps. So now in your brain, you're just like, I'm filled with cancer. This explains why I've been so sick for so long. Why is no one talking to me? Or like, why is no social worker wanting to check in? Am I okay? Or next steps or staging or whatever. And so Friday, I get an urgent call saying, can you come to the hospital? Like right now, the second... I'm due to go give a workplace wellness presentation in another city, right? So I was like, okay, like I can do this, but whatever. Obviously, like medical stuff has to come first over work. So I drive into the hospital, and they're like, "We have to update you again. You don't have colon cancer. You have cancer in your colon, but it didn't originate there. We now actually realize you're stage three or you're stage four with something that's reproductive, but we haven't narrowed it down if it's ovarian, uterine, or cervical cancer." All we know is that these cancer cells didn't start here. So you have something extremely advanced at the moment. And so in that moment, I'm like, okay, think clearly, ask for a copy and documentation. So I was like, can I have a copy of my CT scan? Can I please have a copy of my blood work? Can I please have a copy of my pathology? Can I please have a copy of my colonoscopy? And I went home with this little stack of paper read it carefully myself, just to try to understand what exactly was happening. And then I always believe in talking to people smarter than you. So reached out and talked to a physician friend who is kind of in the oncology world. She looked at things and did me the favor of just like, kind of like seeing me sort of, not even like I was there as a patient first, but I was like, could you look at this? And she was like, okay, not to scare you. This is extremely aggressive and bad you needed to be in surgery like months ago and then bless her heart, bless the universe of like just kindness and people doing what they could to help me out. She got me into one of Canada's best ovarian cancer surgeons, like three days later for my pre-op appointment to get scheduled and you know, properly staged. And then I had my operation three weeks later. So that was the whirlwind of how slow it took to mm-hmm. discover it. And then how fast everything changed so quickly.
0: Hmm. wow that is intense yeah i before before you continue and share because I'd, I'd love for you to continue taking us along this journey obviously uh this was th- that was in 2018 you said yeah late 2018 right so uh we're we're kind of coming up on six, it's six years.
1: I just hit five years. This is five.
0: Right. And you've clearly you've, you've told the story before and, you know, multiple renditions of multiple people. What is it like for you going through this and, and recounting it? Like by the time we finish today, you've got such high energy, but by the time we finish, are you going to be like, Whoa, okay. You know, Now I have to recover.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I have done so much mindset and and energy work. And so where I I remind myself is where focus goes, energy flows. So not that I think the story doesn't have a, a serious impact or it doesn't mean anything to me. It's obviously the most impactful thing I've ever had to survive and overcome, but the moment I got the bad news in that week of processing it, I promised myself I wouldn't have a pity party. I wouldn't go, why me? Poor me. I can't believe this happened. It was, this is the present. Face the present with courage. What's the next step forward? And weirdly, as a dietitian, I did a lot in eating disorder recovery in the work that I do with my own clients and patients. You know, we could go to the cows come home on how did we get here? Why do you have deep-seated anorexia and food issues? Oh, my God, society is so bad. Toxic diet culture, how your family brought you up. And yes, those factors matter in understanding how the disease progressed and became a mental health you know, condition for that person. But the agency, the power that we have is to decide how we want to take it day by day. You know, what choices do I want to make today? What mindset do I want to show up in my day? And what I weirdly credit is I did this very strange exercise personally that I call the teacup. And I did this the night before my surgery. And I really credit to why I have good energy, even as I'm reliving all of this. So the teacup exercise is a story that goes something like this. You're walking along and you get bumped and, you know, tea comes flying out of your teacup. Well, why did tea come out? Well, you made a cup of tea. That's why. Nope. Nope. Had you chose to make a cup of coffee, there'd be coffee in your cup. You know, had you chose to have a glass of water, water would come spilling out. So life provides the cup, you get to put whatever you want in it. So it's easy to fake it when life is smooth and easy and happy and positive. But when we get rattled, it really starts to show how we're going to show up and what's going to come out of us. So I could be afraid, I could be angry, I could be resentful. I mean, for five years, I was trying to tell my healthcare team Something was wrong, but mm-hmm. I realized if that's what comes out of my cup, I'm wasting energy on my own ability to recover. So I made a list of how I wanted to face cancer um, in those moments because I knew it was pretty grim. I knew the statistics was that I was more likely going to die than to live with what you know what I had. So mm-hmm. I wrote down courage. I wrote down love. I wrote down positivity. I wrote down the word hope. I wrote down the word resilient. Inspiration. And I, I was like, there's going to be rough parts of this journey. There's going to be bad news as things progress along. But I can face every single day with courage, positivity, hope, resiliency, bravery, uh, you know, my best self. And as I kept getting jostled, that's just what kept coming out of me. And it made the really hard moments a lot easier. I don't want to misconstrue that this is toxic positivity where I'm just like, everything's great. I did a lot of therapy. I cried a ton. I processed a lot of really hard, uncomfortable emotions. I really thought about what it would look like to die in my 30s at a really young age. And so it just made me so unbelievably grateful that I wake up every day to this day. And I'm like, yes, I get another day. And it it makes you realize how precious every day that we actually get is because it's not guaranteed to any of us. So that teacup exercise was something I did with a lot of my eating disorder clients, knowing they were going to have bad days in their own recovery of how do you want to show up and face the eating disorder monster, you know, in your head Mm -hmm. that's attacking you because the real you is what you put in the teacup. That's how you get to go face it. And I realized all these skills I was building as a dietitian for my clients, I had this amazing treasure chest of just tools and resources and mental skills to go face the scariest thing I ever had to go through.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's incredible. It really, it really is inspiring. And it's, uh, it's amazing to hear you to hear you talk about it, continuing to come back mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. So, so continuing on then tell us how things progressed. What happened? Well, it goes, it goes actually from bad to worse before it gets better.
1: So I, you know, get diagnosed October 29th. And I'm in for surgery December the 3rd. So just a few weeks later, um, starts off with an attempted epidural in my back so that I would have some pain management when I wake up, obviously you're under anesthetic when the surgery is happening and they can't hit the right spot in my spine. So I'm in this like excruciating epidural procedure and I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, like hold it together. So I get wheeled in, in front of this, like pretty gruff, scary surgeon being like, hold your emotions together. Um, Which again, in all honesty, going back, I probably should have just cried. It hurt that badly, but I was just like trying to be brave. So I go in for surgery, obviously you get knocked out. And I guess my operation was about four to five hours. I don't know going in how bad the cancer is or what they're going to take out. So it's a complete surprise when I wake up. I also don't know if I'm going to have a functioning GI tract or a coloscopy bag on the outside where like your your digestive waste obviously has to be cleared via a bag outside of you. So I wake up and I kind of like groggily look down and I'm like, I don't see a bag. So maybe that's good news. Like everything's still on the inside. But I look down and I've got an incision from basically my rib cage to my pubic bone and about 32 staples and stitches all the way down. And it's just this gnarly long, you know, scar kind of like tip to tail. And then this is very odd, but it's a very distinct memory. I remember being extremely dehydrated and I can't really sit up. And so they, you know, bring me a cup of water and I'm like, can I please have something to drink? And then I I can't like physically have the abdominal strength to like move myself. So I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be like high maintenance. Is there any way to get a straw? I can't reach the water to drink it. And then the nurse scolds me, at least to my memory, maybe I was hallucinating over plastic and dolphins in the ocean and why we shouldn't use plastic. And I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't bring my reusable straw to my cancer operation and have it available post-recovery Can you please indulge me with a plastic straw in this moment of need? Like, I was like, this is so ridiculous. Whatever. It's a funny little tidbit now, but I just was like, what is going on in this situation? Not client-centered. Then, I mean, that's not too, too bad. I start to like, sort of like wake up and be like, okay, I can move my hands. Perfect. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, my leg doesn't wiggle. So I look down on my right leg and I'm trying to like make my toes go up and down. And it's just a limpy piece of mush. My leg is just sitting there on the bed and nothing will twitch. Nothing will move. So I try my left side. Okay. My left toe can go up and down. I can kind of like wiggle my you know, calf side to side. My right leg just lies there flat. And so I try to, i like, I don't know if this is post-op or normal. My right leg isn't doing anything. Like it, it's just not working. And so I wasn't sure if it was the missed epidural in my back that they hit a nerve in my spine. Um, what I later learned, I guess, is I had an injury from surgery where you're in a like a stirrups labor delivery position. And because I was in that position for so long, my femoral nerve down my right leg got crushed. And so the blood supply to the nerve was cut off for hours. And the nerve basically got like partly paralyzed, but it did eventually come back. So not only am I waking up from an operation, dehydrated, withheld a straw or like scolded for asking for a straw, but I realize I have a non-functioning limb and then the searing pain. I mean, I'm a tough athlete. Like I can, I can sit in the pain cave and, and do an okay job there. This was like 1000 out of 10. So I have three things of rotating pain. My incision is just so unbelievably sore from all the tissue layers they cut through and having your entire abdominal cavity opened up and closed back together. Then the damaged nerve, think like physiotherapy when they attach the electro pads to you and they turn up the electricity and it shoots like pins and needles through you. It was like an ice pick on fire with pins and needles at like maximum electrocution intensity. So my leg just felt like hot, fiery pins and needles that never, ever turned off. And then physically where my intestines, uh, two different parts of my GI tract were cut out and sewn back together. It felt like raw battery acid going across the internal intestinal wounds. I just remember doing an athletic thing where in competition, I'd be like, okay, like just one more round or like just breathe just five more reps. You can do it. I remember counting myself through one minute at a time, being like, this is so painful. Okay, one more minute. Like you can do one more minute. And then they do hook you up to like a morphine or some kind of like very heavy drug, IV Mm. pump. But every time I pushed it, I basically got really nauseous, almost like an allergic reaction to the medication. Mm -hmm. So it made me dry heave or try to throw up. And so on the incisional wound of 32 staples, where your abs are contracting, trying to vomit, I was like, I can't even take the pain medication because this is more painful. So I just lay there and I think I just had like tears streaming down my face. And I can't move my leg. I can't move out of the bed. I'm in a diaper. Like, you know, your your high capabilities is you're just diminished to you're stripped of everything. And I just had to lie there and endure the pain. Like that actually feels really emotional to relive because it was mm-hmm. just the hardest couple, like, and I was in the hospital bed for a week. So it's a little embarrassing, but they wouldn't give me nutrition or food until I could pass gas. So they basically mm-hmm. needed to see that air could come out to put stuff in the top end. I wasn't able to get gas out of me. Um, my the surgery was Monday until Saturday morning. So my body, ate my lean muscle over a one-week period. I think I lost 15 pounds the week I was in the hospital. I was was like, please, I know there's registered dietitians who work at the hospital. Like, give me IV nutrition. Like, I need protein. My body is eating itself. And they just were like, nah, you're like not a high-priority case. So I just had to lay in the hospital bed, not being fed in excruciating pain, and I just was like left there until I could basically get a fart out of my body, which took a full week and a couple days, di- like a week and a bit. So that was and uh, the most horrible week of my life. And then I had, I remember having like two hospital, you know, roommates and we're all in pain. We're all post-op from some form of like very serious operation. I have a lady beside me who doesn't speak English and she is just screaming bloody murder at the top of her lungs. She's in so much pain. I'm in so much pain. I'm trying not to dry heave. Like, it's just, it's from a nightmare. It's from a horror Mm -hmm. movie, what Mm -hmm. that week was like. It's almost a bad dream reliving it now. It's Mm -hmm. like, was that real life? Is that actually what I endured? And I don't know how, I had my mom and dad who came to visit me. My husband was there. This is the year pre-COVID. So they could be in my hospital room and hold my hand and, you know, like just rub my arm for for support. I don't know how I would have got through that with no family visiting me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I'm so grateful it was the year before all the lockdowns because I thought that was the worst it could get. And I guess there's a level even more worse than what I had to experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. indeed. Wow. That, I, I'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that. What a nightmare for certain. Yeah. Can you then you know, I know it's, it's sort of a a lot to, to jump over, but so how did you go from that surgery through a a period of recovery and were there, were there additional surgeries? Were you able to recover from there? Like how, how did you get from that incredibly low moment to being so so healthy and, and who, you know, still, still here today, still, still thriving.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a great quote in the weightlifting world, which is stronger. People are harder to kill. And I very much stand by that statement. So right away I go into like, what can I do? Cause again, I, I play this game with my clients. There's three circles. There's a green circle of full control. There's a yellow circle of some control, or you can influence, they can't fully control it. And there's a red circle of no control. And I actually play this as a mental basketball game. If I'm dribbling a red basketball of no control, I'm never going to get a swish. I'm never going to get the hoop or the basket. So I started to look for these green basketballs of full control. So I did in-hospital physio. And I basically went home with a walker where I had one good leg, two good arms. And I dragged my limp right spaghetti noodle leg behind me. But I had three strong limbs to make up for the one limb that couldn't carry its weight. And then I contacted my neighbor ahead of time, and I live in a very cute little street of tight-knit neighbors, and I asked if she could go out to like a shopper's drug mart wellness store. And I was like, can you go buy me the walker that I need so I can start to walk around my house and rehab my leg? And she's like, no problem. So my neighbor went out and bought me a walker before I got home from the hospital. We coordinated uh, how to get a hospital bed off for our main floor since I couldn't physically sit up with my abs. So I had a hospital bed that could like lift me up and down. My mom and my husband took basically 24 hour shifts because I couldn't even walk by myself. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I couldn't shower. I couldn't feed myself. I was a little helpless baby bird in a nest. So we, I basically had my mom and my husband plus some friends that helped out who basically just took care of me and brought me scrambled eggs. And I had dietitian friends make me like high protein soft muffins that were easier to digest. And my entire CrossFit community came together and I'm such an athlete at heart. And I was like, I'm going to teach myself to walk again. Like just you wait, it's going to come back. And I had to be physically driven to the gym because my driving leg, the right leg was the one that didn't work. And so members would come pick me up. We would put a big blanket across my abs to strap me in with the seatbelt because it was so painful to have anything touch my abdominal cavity. And they would drive me to the gym. And sometimes I could only go for five minutes. And I would walk with my walker around the gym with my dog, Carly, who just walked by my side. And my whole gym cheered me on just like I was finishing a CrossFit regionals workout. And they would set up boxes for me around the gym because I'd go like 20 feet and then I'd get really fatigued. So I'd sit down on the box for a few minutes and then I'd get up and I'd walk to the next box in the gym and I'd sit down and I'd rest. And so I just slowly worked on building up my endurance of getting my strength back. At the same time, I went real nerdy. So I used to actually be a cancer researcher in university. Um, I love going into PubMed and geeking out on the science and the data. So I started to read every single ovarian cancer PubMed article I could find. Well, real humans do this research and write these articles. So I'm not afraid to just put myself out there. And I started looking up the actual researchers of this material and finding their academic info on the university or the hospital website you often you can track down their email or their department phone number. And so I started to reach out to all these really smart cancer researchers and I asked if I could pay them for their time for a consultation where I could download their brain of anything and everything they'd ever learned about ovarian cancer survival statistics and who were the ones that were doing better or what, you know, um, medicines or technologies were, you know, at the cutting edge. And these people will talk to you. No one would accept my money as much as I tried to pay mm-hmm. them. So I went on this like sprint of talking to really smart ovarian cancer researchers. And then at the same time, as I went kind of deep into the Western academic science, I went super Eastern as well. And so I read a lot of books on one of my favorites was Kelly Turner, a PhD researcher on radical remission. And she did anecdotal evidence. So it's not quite the same as like a clinical controlled trial, but she just went around the world and interviewed people, stage three and stage four, who were basically told they weren't going to make it. And so what she did is she put together the different commonalities of what these radical remission survivors had in common. And it's a lot with our nutrition, our our stress, our sleep, our mindset, joy, humor, hope, positive future to look forward to, this like calm, quiet confidence in yourself that you're going to do it. And so I just one day on a hike as I learned to regain my ability to walk. I went out with a journal and I made a list of everything my heart and my intuition told me that I needed to do to be in that small percent of people who make it. And then I wrote this long list of things around my nutrition, my stress, my sleep, my mindset, even to the extent of like practice deep forgiveness forgive and release the bullies, you know, be okay, and be at peace with dying, but have a strong belief, I'm I'm still going to have a good chance of making it. And I just look at that list every single morning when I wake up. And I tried for that year to do, you know, as many things on that list as I could. And within five months, I did a full on PET scan, they couldn't find one ounce of cancer left in my body. And they actually didn't believe the scan results the first time happen but I've since had a second pet scan also come clear and I've had 23 clear CT scans in the last five years because I still get scanned every three months it's so high risk of coming back at this point but I'm I'm in the five I'm in the five year mark and I'm in the eight percent and that's what I told the doctor I said someone has to be in the eight percent why not me
0: Wow I have chills <laughs> I mean it really it's it's it really truly is an incredible story and it's yeah i i you can't not listen to it and think about your own life and how to bring in some of some of that approach and that mindset that you used for you know the struggles that we all face and mm-hmm. I I remember talking to you, I I can't remember when it was, but somewhere in your recovery and in your determination to be within that 8%. And one of the things that you had said at the time was like, I don't, I feel like I have all this stuff in me. Like I have all this knowledge. I have ideas. I have messages that I really want to share and and live and impart to the world. And I don't want to die without getting the opportunity to share that. How do you Mm -hmm. feel? Do you you remember that or thinking that? I do. And how do you feel about that today? Do you feel like you're doing it? I absolutely am. It is my
1: biggest professional gift to come out of cancer. So kind of pre-cancer to post-cancer. Pre-cancer, I had sort of two roles I was juggling between. I was a foods and nutrition university professor and I loved it. I had my first year students who I was inviting into the world of university and making nutrition really fun. And then I had my third year class of really advanced sports nutrition and those people that were hard charging to be registered dietitians and wanting to work with high level athletes. Like I'm so passionate about both topics. And then on top of that, I had my own private practice, Nutrition RX, where I was basically taking the research and then doing it in the everyday counseling of working with real people to just help them have a better relationship with food. And as I was going through one of my Reiki, like energy cancer treatments, which I'd never done anything like that prior to cancer, there was this vibration that started to happen in my throat. And this thought would not leave my brain. And the thought was, you're playing too small, you are now ready for a bigger stage. And what that thought meant to me was, okay, I'm, yes, I'm really, really gifted at, you know, understanding the nerdy science and then making it fun and come to life with games and metaphors and analogies. And people just seemed to really enjoy talking to me about their struggles with nutrition because they felt heard and not judged. And they were always left with inspiring things they could try instead of this long list of things to stop doing. And I knew I was coaching nutrition a little bit differently than what we tend to see out there. And so that push from my voice box vibrating and being like, you're playing too small was I didn't know in that time if I was going to live or not. So I just wanted to get on camera and at least start to record some of my silly metaphors, some of my games, some of my coaching activities, even like the basketball one of like, is this a green-colored basketball? Is this a yellow colored? Is this a red? It's just a different gamified way of saying are you obsessing about things out of your control or are you empowered in taking action and getting swishes and, you know, uh, points on the scoreboard for direct things under your control you can use to make your life better. And so I just created this database of videos of all these funny things I was doing privately. And I thought, kind of thought, okay, selfishly, this is just a great training bank for my dietitian team. Cause if I have chemo, if I'm unwell, if I have to hire a new team member I am on camera sort of being able to gift them these coaching metaphors and skills. Then entered the pandemic. Everything goes on lockdown, especially in Canada. Our gym industry was closed and, you know, not open to the public for a long time. And so I was running our nutrition program inside our CrossFit London facility and our nutrition program just exploded through the pandemic because people didn't have capacity to do the traditional stuff. They didn't want to follow a strict meal plan. They didn't want to have yet one more restriction imposed on them. And so mm-hmm. what started to catch on was this style of nutrition coaching we had always done for years, which was very empowering and about like forward movement of what you can do, abundance mentality of adding more good and not scolding you or shaming you over the bad. People just latched on and they're like, this is the kind of nutrition coaching I need with my life on fire right now. And so we just grew outgrew our capacity. And then suddenly I was starting to get these quiet little requests from other CrossFit gym owners. And they're like, we have no ability to make money. Our gym is closed, but we've been following you. Your nutrition program in house is like blowing up. Can we, we know you have this little training program. Can our coach just go through it? Can I just like sign up my coach to like Follow you guys around online and see what you're saying and doing because we have a nutrition program, but ours isn't very good. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like if you're struggling, I'm happy to help you. I ha- like I said, I built this library, and so like one gym went through it, and then another gym went through it, and then another gym went through it, and I was like, oh, like there's actually a business here. And so I, I re-recorded it to a higher level, and that became my Prosper Nutrition certification, a complete accident. But now I feel like I'm playing at that bigger stage because it's not just me doing all the one-on-one nutrition coaching, I actually get to help coaches elevate their skills and share this with their own community. And I get to fight eating disorder diet culture right from the core inside and spread goodness out to the world. So that feels really special. And I don't know if I would have done that if I didn't have cancer.
0: That is so cool. And yeah, there's, there's that ripple effect from it, because then when you're able to help coaches and, and, and other gym owners. It's not just the people who are going to come into your gym. It's everybody that they're going to affect and, and impart that wisdom to and, and on and on. And it's, it's a really yeah. interesting as well to hear that it didn't come from you sitting down and saying, Hey, I'm going to make a thing that maybe people will buy. It came from yeah. a combination of you saying, this is what's, what really matters to me. And I, I really want to make sure I put it out into the world. And than a responsiveness to a, a, a clear need from the marketplace of, of people asking you about it. I I also, yeah, recall, I think, go ahead. I was
1: going to say, I think there's the gap of where like this just fits so perfectly is so many coaches have certifications in the theory. And they're like, I, I have the theory of nutrition coaching down. I understand motivational interviewing or client centered coaching. And they're like, but why isn't my program growing or why am I stuck at five clients? And I'm like, Oh, like, Cool. If you already have the theory, now here's all the action steps. Here's all the games. Here's the real on the street stuff that I'm like, this is what I actually say and do when I have someone. And they're like, Oh my gosh, I have such a bigger library now of metaphors, stories, games, ways to explain carbohydrates, ways to get into the energy systems that aren't overwhelming and too scientific. They're like, ah, you just, I have this gift of making complex science fun and easy to understand. And I developed that skill as the university prof. Because my first year students, I was assigned the nutrition students who are non-science majors. So anyone who has to have a science elective just to like check it off their graduation list, but they're Mm -hmm. not in science because they want to be there. So I had to figure out how to break down this full year foods and nutrition class and get my students to pass. And I learned that by telling the information in more stories and metaphors and games, my students could study better and apply it better. And so I think that application piece makes this certification just a lot more valuable, at least for the coaches I've worked with. Cause they're like, cool. I have a way to speak to my clients. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. I love that. And it's uh, it, it relates strongly to something that I try to impart to folks in terms of communicating and storytelling right? Like how you said about getting your students to pass, that is a great mm-hmm. metaphor. If you're giving a speech and you were to then uh, if everybody had to like take a test on what you were telling them or, or teaching them, would they pass? If they finish reading the, the book or the court or going through the course or whatever it is, are they going to be able to pass and being able to take what you know and what you want to say, but then put it through the lens of, well, but who is your audience? Where What is their starting point? What matters to them? What's relevant to them? What previous background or education or experience do they have? What is the lens that they're seeing this through? And then how do you take what you want and sort of put it through that that funnel to be able to then relate to them? So I think that's such a core um, storytelling skill as well as a coaching skill. Hmm. Yeah, very true. So the question I was going to ask before too was, um, I also recall that as you were going through the, your recovery process and this very scary and dark time through all of it, Mm -hmm. you shared what you were going with kind of as it happened. Like, it's one thing to be able to look back and be like, I went through some real traumatic stuff. Now I've processed it. I've made it through the other side. So now I can tell a story about it, but you, you shared with folks as you were going through it. I remember you did it on Facebook at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was anywhere else. What, Um, I don't know what observations or reflections do you have on the value of just like sharing your own story and experiences in the moment when it is so raw and vulnerable? Yeah, Uh,
1: You're absolutely right. The messy guts were just out on the counter as, as it was happening. And (laughs) partly I did it. I think there was, there was two reasons why I I have a uh, like a, a weird relationship with social media. I actually dislike social media more than I like it. So I try to use it. I, I don't show up with filters. I don't over edit my, like, you know, I just, I think we need to be real in the way that we show up in the world. And there's way too much fakeness and positive onlys. And I was like, this isn't a positive time. There are really bad, scary, awful things happening. Now, certainly there were happy moments woven in, but I just thought, I'm going to just show what's happening in real life, in real time as it is. And so it was to not try to make it seem like a small thing because what I went through was not a small um, or happy thing. At the same time, the other component, I guess, of using the social media in that way is for the best of reasons, so many people knew me and were worried about me and wanted to keep up with like what was happening. And again, I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. And I did have a friend die of cervical cancer at 29. And at the very end, she went down quite quickly. And I wish we could have stayed in touch a bit better, but her energy was too low to even be able to do that. So part of it was this, I'll admit, even a selfish reason of I had a lot of people I wanted to keep informed of how I was doing and my real friends I'm hundred percent real with, I don't hold back. I'm just authentically like, this is what's going on. And I deeply share with my, my closest friends. And I thought, you know, if they're on social media with me, they are a friend. So I'm just going to share exactly like I would be sharing with my good friends. So that realness that you saw come out of me is how I show up in my life at all times. And I don't believe in having like be privately one way and publicly a fake facade. I'm just me. That's all I know how to be. And so it was almost in a business efficiency of like, I have to text and keep all these people updated. Or I was like, or I can just give it to the world. And so many people privately started to share. They were um, really appreciating their day so much more. They were hugging their kids before bed and just being so present in that moment and not on their phone. They're like, I'm changing my behavior because you're helping me to see the value of how lucky I am or the good of going on, or you're putting it in perspective. When I'm having a small thing and a bad day, I'm not blowing it at a proportion because I have the perspective of what other people, you know, might be going through. And then my biggest observation, and this is like the opposite of the cynical view of the world is people are so amazing. People are good. Everyone has such a good center inside of them. And so I use the metaphor of the care bear. And so when I was a kid, I was a kid of the 80s and the 90s. The care bears were my favorite cartoon. I slept with the little cheer bear every night. And my favorite thing is that rainbow blast that comes out of their belly. They just share their love and their goodness to make the world better. And when I was a dietitian before cancer, especially with my eating disorder clients, I always felt like they needed a little care bear blast from me. And I always tried to give this kind of private energy exchange of like, I hope when you leave your session with me, you just feel that lift. You just feel like you're in a warm hug and you're in a better, happier, healthier place to go out and be more empowered. You know, I'm not going to do the decision making and the the agency change for you that that falls on your shoulders, but I'm going to be your biggest supporter through this. And what was so cool is I'd been just doing care bear blasts for years, privately in my head to others. And it was like every single person in my life linked arms. And like, this is where I get really happy Mm -hmm. tears. Mm -hmm. Care bear blasted me with their love. And they're like, Jen, we don't want to lose you. You need to be here still. Like your purpose is not finished yet. And I just, through social media and and in real life, I actually could feel people sending love and thoughts and prayers. And whether we can prove it or not, this is my lived experience. There were days where I could feel like a rice crispy, popping, tingling, dissolving sensation. And I was like, someone is sending me love right now. And whether it's chemotherapy or not, I actually think love is killing cancer cells in my body. Like, I can feel something happening on the inside. And that's after enough of those days in a row where I could feel this sensation of like this tingling cancer dot. I don't know, whatever what it was. I just was like, I gotta go do a PET scan. I don't think there's any cancer left because the tingling all stopped after a period of time. And I was like, I think it's all gone. I just want to go see. And it was all gone. So Mm. I don't know. Like it sounds absolutely nuts, but
0: It's so beautiful. Have you used your story to then help other people in your coaching, in your coaching of coaches? Like, how do you use your story today?
1: Yeah, I mean, podcasting is probably one of the biggest ways. It's always, I think, where the podcast host wants to go. And as you know, I'm very open and I don't mind talking about it. So it allows me for those that maybe didn't get to come along the journey the first time as I was going through it in in real time, with me reliving it back and sharing the the hard parts, the joyful parts, the the messy parts, maybe you got a lot of value in these, you know, 45, 50 minutes that we've been talking. And again, I get to share that perspective that life is so precious and to not take any any of the good stuff for granted. But also we can do hard things. You can go through hard times and ask for help and and lean into the skill that you've already been building and you're going absolutely to come out a better, stronger version of yourself. So it's a nice reminder of like the light and the dark in hard times. And I always think about like for a tree to grow to great heights, it has to plant deep roots. It can't have shallow roots and be the tallest tree in the forest. So when it's really painful, those roots are just going deeper to ground you. And then you're ready to explode to the next level of the best version of yourself. So podcasts are, are one way that I get to, I think, sprinkle some of that, that wisdom that I had to learn at an earlier age because of a traumatic event. Um, on my bucket list is to apply to do a TED Talk. And I hope I can, again, be on that bigger stage and, and share this story in, in some way or another. And inside my certification, a lot of the mindset games I used for the resiliency piece. Because when we're making a big lifestyle change, You can come in with all the motivation in the world. And then I always say motivation is our fickle friend. It RSVPs yes to the party. It may show up. It may not show up. It's pretty flaky. But if we can connect with our deeper why and that resiliency piece, we are much more likely to find the right tools and support systems to still continue forward even when the going gets hard. So I really kicked that into the certification. And I don't know if I would have had that level of mindset. Um, coaching and games and metaphors had I not had the cancer experience going into filming the material.
0: Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And it also, it, it comes with a lot of um, like sort of weight and I don't know, credibility, believability Mm -hmm. too, because you have been through it. So you are a real example of like this stuff can sound really nice when it's on Instagram or, you know, a little quote on Pinterest or something like that, or a magnet yeah. on your fridge, but it's another thing to have to, to really dig into it and live it and practice it when you're dealing with things that are, that are very hard and very daunting. And you're and really challenging you to, to your core mm-hmm. before you. we, yeah, that's before very nice we, of uh, to that. Thank you. Of course. Before we wrap up, then, um, do you want to just leave listeners with like a little bit of a, a reminder about where you're at, or what to find, where yeah. to find you, and where to go if they want to learn more or dig into more of those stories and materials that you have to share?
1: Oh my gosh, that's so kind of you. Well, my first gift, I just want to leave the world is a whole bunch of freebies. So like I said, I got on camera and just wanted to share some of my favorite coaching metaphors and games. So I have a completely free nutrition masterclass. You can be a coach. You can just be taking it because you like healthy eating. If you go to prospernutritioncoaching.com slash freebies, it's right there on the top and a whole bunch of other like healthy snack, freebie, like just a whole bunch of goodies you can help yourself to. And yeah, if anyone wants to keep following along, I'm still updating my, my friends and family on this journey. So on Instagram, I am at prosper underscore NC. And yeah, my website's prospernutritioncoaching.com. My email's on there. If you just want to email me and chat, reach out at any time.
0: Well, thank you, Jen. Thank you for sharing your story, your heart, your passion, your enthusiasm, your honesty, all of it. Thank you. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at com. While you're there... Don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter, where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters.